This episode of Between the Covers is brought to you in part by Vancouver Manuscript Intensive, a literary mentoring program that pairs emerging and established authors with mentors in their genre. Directed by award-winning writers Ellie Kralgie Gardner and Rachel Rose in Vancouver, BC, the program is open to writers around the world who seek sustained mentorship for their works in progress. Writers can join the six-month program that includes interaction with other mentors and students and participation in a public reading, or they can pursue solo guidance for more directed and short-term support all year long. This year also inaugurates the VMI Fellowship for a writer of exceptional promise with a manuscript in progress who has faced significant barriers to fulfilling that promise, including but not limited to racism, poverty or class barriers, geographic dislocation or refugee status, single parenthood, disability, or serious illness. The application deadline for the six-month program beginning January 2021 is November 9th. Please visit VancouverManuscriptIntensive.com for more information about pairing with a mentor to hone your project. Today's episode is also brought to you by Resistencia, a collection of Latin American poetry in resistance, edited by Mark Eisner and Tina Escaja. Within this momentous collection, poets representing every Latin American country explore feminist, queer, indigenous, and ecological themes alongside historically prominent protests against imperialism, dictatorships, and economic inequality resisting easy definitions to render a nuanced and complex portrait of language in rebellion, says Julia Alvarez in her introduction. To read through these poems is to be reminded again and again of our true allegiance to each other, adds Luis Alberto Urrea. It is a stunning collection of revelations and witness. Resistencia is out now from Tin House. For those listeners who are listener supporters, you've been involved with me since the show moved from in-person to remote in a collective brainstorm where we've shared and compared our dream lists of guests to invite going forward. Early on in the pandemic, a half a year ago now, I also made my own personal shortlist of guests that I suspected I would never have had the chance to talk to otherwise, that the likelihood of them coming through Portland was low. And today's guest is one of my personal dream conversations with the German writer Jenny Erpenbeck. She talked to me from her home in Berlin, an early morning for me and a late afternoon for her. And as much as I anticipated this conversation and found so much pleasure in preparing for it, it definitely somehow still exceeded my highest hopes for it. I can't wait to share this with you today. Today's addition to the bonus audio is a conversation with Kurt Beals, the translator of Jenny Erpenbeck's most recent book, the one we discussed today, not a novel, a memoir in pieces. This continues a tradition of whenever a guest is speaking about a book in English that they wrote in a different language, of inviting the translator on for a supplementary conversation. Most recently, this was Sophie Hughes who makes a cameo in the main conversation with Fernanda Melchor with an electrifying read from Hurricane Season. But she also joined me for a nearly hour-long conversation from her home in London 
to talk about translating Hurricane Season, which is up for the National Book Award in Translated Literature. But there are now many of these in the archives, from a conversation with Ellen Elias Bursich about translating Dubrovka Gresic, as well as being a translator for the War Crimes Tribunal at The Hague, to Suzanne Jill Levine talking about translating Cristina Rivera Garza. You can find out about the bonus audio at patreon.com slash between the covers. For people listening today who are regular listeners, you already know that we are in the middle of a fall fundraising push for Between the Covers, that the pandemic has upended my job, but fortunately has pushed me, if prematurely, in the direction I was already hoping to and striving to go, where Between the Covers is my main occupation, not just in the hours put in, but in all senses. Somewhere between 1% and 2% of listeners are supporters, and the aim is to get this between 2 and 3% by the end of the year. Entry level to joining a dynamic community of listener supporters is only $1 an episode, or $24 a year. Find out more about all the perks and benefits and rewards of becoming part of Between the Covers and its community at patreon.com slash between the covers. And now for today's program with Jenny Erpenbeck. These stories are about the id unleashed. They're about the wildness contained in all of us. I think stories kind of have some kind of magical effect in the world. I think it's really hard to live without stories. And if somebody tells you, like, this is the way you're going to end up, you're lucky if you can forget that. You know, there's me, and then there's writer guy me, and then there's me working, which is the absence of me. It's just story. Had no idea how to write a novel, didn't know if it would ever come to fruition. Was working at a vet and kind of lint-rolling puppy hair and cat dander off myself. They're almost like really shy animals. They will come out of the woods, but you have to stay very still, and you have to pretend like you're not interested in them. Artists tend to, like, put their fingers in the wounds in the silences. I believe in the role of literature as a, as a catalyst for dialogue and, and, and new forms of, of thinking. All the stuff I'm interested in is thrown into the washing machine that is my brain and it's put on spin. Good morning and welcome to Between the Covers. I'm David Naiman, your host. Today's guest is one of the foremost writers writing today, Jenny Erpenbeck. Born in East Berlin, Erpenbeck apprenticed as a bookbinder, worked as a props and wardrobe supervisor in the theater, and ultimately pursued studies at the Hans Eisler Music Conservatory to become an opera director, directing operatic works both in Germany and Austria by Bella Bartok, Mozart, Monteverde, and Schoenberg, among others. It was in the 1990s that Jenny Erpenbeck began working as a writer, beginning to create the body of work that prompted the critic James Wood in The New Yorker to call her not only the most prominent and serious German novelist of her generation, but also in reference to her most recent novel, Go Went Gone, about the European refugee crisis, he said, when Erpenbeck wins the Nobel Prize in a few years, I suspect this novel will be cited. A sentiment echoed by Neil Mukherjee, who calls Erpenbeck the most profound, intelligent, humane, and important writer of our times. Her books include the story collection The Old Child, 
the novella The Book of Words, the novel Visitation that tells the story of a parcel of land across time and was picked as one of the 100 best books of the 21st century by The Guardian, and The End of Days, winner of the Independent Foreign Fiction Prize and the Hans Falada Prize, a book whose protagonist dies four times, living five different lives that illuminate the histories and mysteries of the 20th century. All of these books were translated into English by Susan Bernofsky for New Directions. Jenny Erpenbeck joins me today on Between the Covers from Berlin to discuss her first book of nonfiction called Not a Novel, A Memoir in Pieces, translated into English by Kurt Beals for New Directions, a book Deborah Eisenberg for the New York Review of Books calls Wonderful, Elegant, Exhilarating, Ferocious, as well as Virtuosic. Nicole Krauss adds, Jenny Erpenbeck's restrained, unvarnished prose is overwhelming. John Dominey for the Washington Post echoes James Wood when he says, the impact of not a novel is of a masterwork. Erpenbeck ought to be considered for the Nobel. Finally, Hassan Altaf for the Paris Review says, the subtitle of not a novel by the German writer Jenny Erpenbeck is a memoir in pieces, but I think maybe the word shards would be more accurate. The texts collected here come from many eras and many moments and seem to fall around the reader like bits of glass, catching the light at different angles, complete in themselves but tied to one another to create a whole that is provisional and temporary and full of cracks. There is no trail of breadcrumbs in this book, but somehow that makes it feel, as a memoir, even more real. Part of me expects the publication of this book to land like a boulder on an iced-over river. There is something terrifying but liberating about seeing a person construct herself and her history in a way that feels so opposite to everything we are told. Welcome to Between the Covers, Jenny Erpenbeck. Hello. I'm happy to be here virtually. <laughs> yes. Well, I, I wanted to start with the title. With, with your novel, Visitation, the word visitation in, in German has a negative connotation, like the visitation of a plague, but the origins of the word have a more positive connotation, something more like home-seeking. And you, you've said that you like or are drawn to titles that have a contradiction in them or have a countercurrent in them. And that's very obvious, more obvious with the title of this book than with Visitation. So tell us about the title, Not a Novel, a title that seems to be defining the book by what it's not. Once uh, a writer starts to, to, to write fiction, after one book has been published, like one year after publishing it or two years after publishing it, everybody would ask for the next novel. And uh, I thought it was funny to, to call it no, not a novel, to, to tell the, the readership that the book to come is not a novel. <laughs> And it was like a joke. Uh, and, and, you know, I, I didn't like the, the serious titles like collected essays or collected reflection on this and that, uh, which, which makes it much, uh, much more intellectual than it perhaps is. 
but at the same time, even though it sounds like this came as as a a bit of humor, you do meditate in this book on the relationship between autobiography and how you create fiction and your fictional worlds, um, which sort of connects to this idea of not a novel and what that might mean. And I want to stick, even though you don't write about visitation specifically in this light, I kind of wanted to stick with it as an example or maybe a counterexample to um, what you're doing in Not a Novel and this connection between life and art. So at the beginning, visitation was going to be based on your experiences of a summer house where you had particularly memorable summers, a house that your family lost when Germany was reunified. But your own real experience became, in the end, only the basis for one chapter. And the book expanded and became about the many people who had, just like you, lived in this very same house, but had lost the house. So we, we have the architect who builds the house in Nazi times and buys the house of the Jews who have to flee, who live next door. And then the architect has to flee himself when... Um, the land becomes part of East Germany. And then the two communist writers who live in the house returning from the Soviet Union post-war, which are based on your own grandparents. And then they themselves have to flee. But, but you don't only imagine yourselves into these lives. You spent a lot of time in the archives, reading everything from property law to the letters of the real Jewish girl who fled this house what she wrote before she was killed in an extermination camp. And it seems like you have a desire to tether these fictional chapters to their real-life counterparts in some very tangible way. And not only that, while many of the characters are unnamed, so some of the characters are the architect or the gardener, you wanted to name with their real names these fictional characters uh, you gave them the real names of who they're based on if they were taken advantage of to honor their memory. So a Jewish character was given their real life name or if they were someone taking advantage of someone else, you wanted to tie their name to the bad actions of that person. So with all of this reality and visitation, I wondered if you could call visitation not a novel. And if, if you, and in other words... In a more serious note, what I mean is, could you talk to us about the differences between facts and lived experiences in your fiction versus facts and lived experiences in your nonfiction? That's a, a tricky question. Um, I was always happy when people uh, told me that they thought uh, visitation would just be uh, a fictional work. And, and often they were surprised to hear that I did so much research and that mainly the, 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 the stories are mainly based on, on, on my research. In a way, if you, if you write, you try to hide yourself and to discover yourself mm. and to open yourself at once. So, so it's, a, it's a mixture. So if, if the hiding, if you, if you succeed in hiding, you will be happy. But also... Some people might ask, uh, is this a true story? And they mean if I myself lived through it and they have a desire to, to, to read a true story or which is based on real experience. And in a, in a way, it's, 
you can get tired of this question, but on the other hand, it's also interesting because reading is a way of sharing ex experiences. So I also understand this kind of question. And, and when I myself am a reader, I'm also interested to, to not only read the story, but also to know the story behind the story. Mm -hmm. So like the biography of the author and how come that he wrote this book or she wrote this book. So, so I think um, you can be happy if someone doesn't realize that it is based on research or on, on true stories. And you can also be happy if, uh, if you can answer the question with, uh, yes, it's based on, on something. But I think the point is that, that you are able to take yourself as an example. So this, this allows you to step back and to look at yourself from a distance and to look at yourself in a way as you would look at any other person in the world. Mm. But of course, you you know much more about yourself. And and also the family um, that is given to you is, um, I always used to say, it's like a, an extract of mankind. So it's like the small world and the big world. So you will have all the, um, not all, but everyone has special rela relations within his family. But but in a way, you will have the, the conflicts and you will have the love and you will have the, the secrets, uh, the untold stories or the stories that are revealed after the death of someone. You know, you have like, you have a small part of world which is given to you for a more thorough yeah, research or look at it. And, and from these experiences, also your own, of course, or the, the experiences of the people that are close to you, you will make a story. But a story is always something that is made up or made up is perhaps the, the wrong expression in English. No, it's the right one. It's I something, think. Naya, it's something that is produced and it needs a lot of decisions. Even if these are only decisions, what to take into the story and what to leave out or what to take, what to tell first and what to tell in the end mm. and what questions to put and leave unanswered or what questions can be answered or should be answered. In a way, every every art is something that is different from life. It's it's uh, uh, if you use the language that people are used to use, they they perhaps um, wouldn't wouldn't um, pay attention to it. So if if I, if I'm a composer and I I uh, compose music, it's much more obvious that this is something that is apart from life or is a different kind of expression. But in a way, the language does the same, but it's not so obvious. So so it's a mixture. And and with uh, some stories, it was it was really difficult to decide would they fit into the not a fiction and not, not, a, not, not a novel book or should I leave them out and and wait for uh, like another volume of short stories or something like that. Yeah, it's it's um, 
you are you are inventing yourself in a way. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I liked this this notion of of both wanting to hide and wanting to be discovered. And I wonder if they're not opposites, if if maybe by hiding you can discover something also about yourself. Um, because when I was in your conversation with Neil Mukherjee, that was just so wonderful. He, he brought up autofiction, which engages and blurs autobiography and fiction, which he characterizes being very self-focused. And I don't know if I totally agree with him on that analysis, but the thing that I did agree with him on was that he distinguished your work from inward looking books, that your book was an out, your books were outward looking and it sort of feels connected also to the way you were describing looking at yourself in your books from a distance. Um, and this, and in visitation, if we use that as an example, the way your individual story becomes nested within a whole bunch of other stories. But what's particularly interesting to me is, is how that looking away from self seems to be an act of self-discovery. And that's where I was hoping you would talk about how not a novel opens because you open with this phenomenon about becoming a writer partially through fulfilling the desires of others. So somebody says to you, could you write me a short story? And then you had never written a short story and you write a short story. And someone says, could you do a screenplay? And you write a screenplay. <laughs> and it made me feel, and I don't know if this is true, if I'm taking this too far, but it made me feel that perhaps you found your voice and maybe even found yourself as a writer by reaching away from what you knew. And so in a sense, like reaching away from the self that you were familiar with, you discover yourself. You're right. I, I'm not the type of writer who says, I have to write every day my one or two pages, otherwise I will die. <laughs> you know, I'm not this type of writer. And I, I also doubt if someone else would say so, because I think you would, you, you know, you could die because you are starving or, or because you are lost somewhere, but not because you are not writing. You know, this is, this is a fairy tale. <laughs> but uh, in a way, um, I always wrote and I always read. I, I loved reading. So... The reading, I, I would say the reading was in the beginning and I um, I didn't feel the, the, the urge to write or to become a writer because, as you know, all people in my family were writers already, so there was no need to, to be another writer. So this took the pressure from me to... Um, th this kind of expression was very common to me, very familiar to me. So this was the normal way to express oneself in our family. So everybody would, you know, like write. <laughs> and um, to find your way of expression is always uh, a way to found your individual existence. Mm. And my way to found my individual existence was to become an opera director. <laughs> because there was no one before in our family, an opera director. So I, I thought this is my way. So, of course, when people asked me to write a short story, I had ne never written a short story until then. But still, the writing was the thing which was closest to me. 
So, so I always used to write di uh, diaries and so on and so on. Um, in a in a bigger sense, you you might be right. Perhaps my my family expected me to become a writer, you know. <laughs> and uh, so this uh, the 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 expectation of my family um, perhaps has has more weight than the uh, expectation of of someone who wants a wants me to write a short story. Um, but I always uh, kept my writing apart from my family members. So I, I would write and I would use it for my very, very personal way of, of you know, like being in love, being unhappy. I would always sit down and write in my diary. Yeah. But without the idea of using it as a as a professional thing, and I would always keep it um, away from my family. Also, the first text that I wrote, I wouldn't show my father or my my mom or my grandmother uh, before they um, had been published. So, so I think this was this was good because it's like keeping it for yourself. Yeah. Well. One of the things that I really enjoyed about Not a Novel were your meditations on other writers and the way you would take these quotes from other writers that to me felt like could have been descriptions of your own writing, or at least I recognized my experience of reading you in your experience of reading these other writers. And a couple of things, a couple of ones that reached out that jumped out to me were when you say, um, of Walter Kempowski. He works with autobiographic material, but he always regards himself as a source for better understanding history. And, and even more so, a second one from a speech in the book where you talk about Ovid. You say, Ovid knows that every static state preserves within itself a process of becoming. That movement is contained within the things themselves in the form of waiting. In his stories, possibility and memory find a refuge alongside each other and with each other. And he knows only when we speak of metamorphosis does that which is lost retain its identity. And this quote in particular feels like an entryway into your body of work for me in many different ways. The idea of a static state containing a process of becoming and that movement can be found within things themselves feels connected to the way you associate the fall of the Berlin Wall with your birth as a writer. That without moving, that, that without leaving your home in East Berlin from one day to the next, you were exiled from the country you knew. That you, in a sense, became a refugee without flight. And, and that process of becoming and the process of becoming a writer happened through your country disappearing underneath your feet. And you say about this, freedom wasn't given freely. It came at a price, and the price was my entire life up to that point. Our everyday lives weren't everyday lives anymore. They were an adventure that we had survived. Our customs were suddenly an attraction. From that moment on, my childhood belonged in a museum. And I, I was hoping you could talk to us about this unasked for metamorphosis 
in relationship to your birth as a as a writer and how you how you connect these two? I really think that uh, perhaps I I would never have become a writer without this political change of the systems. Um, uh, it was a it, uh, it was a strong experience to to see how something that you um, that you believe is is uh, stable in a way as in general in general uh, is is uh, lost from one week to the next and uh, many of my friends and of my uh, my parents and my parents friends we we all uh, had the idea uh, that the the East German Republic needs needs a change, but I think no one at this time in 1989 and 90, beginning of 1990 um, thought that the whole system would disappear. So it was like uh, we we want to make it better, we want to change it, we want to have a new government, we have to uh to change the the way of of government how how the 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 country is um organized but everyone thought we would keep it mm. and then then we um we could see that uh it was like a question of minutes and we became capitalist country yeah and 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 um, until now when I when I walked uh, through the streets in in East Berlin I've I've always two films in my head the the, the film that I see when I'm walking and the film of how it looked like in my childhood and youth it, it gave everything a double, uh, how how you call it, a double bottom. Mm -hmm. <laughs> it's like you you you. It, there were so strong changes, especially in Berlin, of course, but also in other cities. Um, like the facades renovated and houses being built, and the the way the the shops uh, looked like all of a sudden and and all the cafes and restaurants that that were opened and so on so it was like the same old city that i knew and the new one on the on the same film yeah. on, the, on 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 the same uh, negative so to say yeah. you know it's, it's like like it's it's all double and for me, it was in a way it was the same. I'm still uh, of an East German origin. I um, the way I think, or the the people that were important to me um, were East Germans, and uh, I'm also I, I've also stepped into the new world. So so I got used to traveling and um, to speaking English. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Naya, so I, I, I'm, it's like, like being um, cut in the middle, you know, you have 
have two souls in one person. Mm. And this is always a good starting point to write. In case you just tuned in, we're talking to the writer Jenny Erpenbeck about her latest book, Not a Novel, a Memoir in Pieces. As you mentioned, you you come from a family of writers. Your mother is a translator. Your mother was a translator from Arabic to German. Your father a writer. Your grandparents were writers. Your grandmother was a best-selling writer. And in some of these essays, we see you writing at the same desk as your mother and your grandmother before, putting your paper clips in the same place that your mother put her paper clips. Um, and we feel this sort of intergenerational connection. And it made me feel like when you describe this about the wall and your writing, it made me think of the end of days and how you you do this exercise with one life being lived five times. And if one or two small things change, very large changes happen over the course of a life in terms of the outcome of, of the same person. And you've said that if, if the wall hadn't fallen, you'd probably still be an opera director. But your father, who was a fiction writer before the wall fell, he stopped writing fiction when the wall fell. So I, I was wondering if you could talk about this. Um, what happened to his relationship to fiction for him with the wall falling that drew him in the opposite direction of you, um, away from fiction instead of towards it? My father um, wrote a couple of, of, of novels and, and po uh, poetry and, and he also published uh, poetry and texts of others. So he was very um, he was very used to the world of writing in the in East East Germany in the GDR. Uh, and his subjects were um, he thought about, how what changes uh, does this kind of society need so that it would work in a better way which are the problems uh, uh, you know his subjects were subjects of this kind of society up to this point mm. so his starting point was a completely different starting point than the one i had so he would start in the with his uh, work and thinkings in um, in the 60s. So it was like the war was really over. The first difficulties had already been there in the history of GDR, like the 7th of June in 1953, where there was uh, you know, <laughs> I, 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 it's too much to to tell all the, the political events now. But so so he was he was starting uh, his writing in a moment when he wanted to develop his um, his society, mm -hmm. his his like community, the political community, and when the wall fell. The system he was working on also as a writer uh, had failed and disappeared. So he he always used to say to me that it doesn't make any sense for him to write about the world we we are in from this moment on. 
you know, it, it didn't interest him. It was not his world. And and so he was he was lacking his subjects mm. and, and the things that were interesting to him. And my starting point was, uh, as I said before, uh, the um, the fall of the wall and this this very, very um, essential thing of comparing all the time of like, how was it? How is it? And coming from from this question leading to to the question, what will be or how, how where will we go to now? So I started uh, when when the socialist society was ended. And uh, so I started to think about uh, destruction, loss, transformation, transition. All these things were my the, the points that made me write. But this was completely different from what what made him write. Well, you sort of answered or at least partially answered the next question I was going to ask, but I'm going to ask it anyways um, to see if you have some further thoughts. Because this idea of the the presence and absence of the wall or this the fact that we have the in your life the presence and the absence of the wall uh, feels like it's connected to two themes, which you've you've just touched on that go across your works. The question of borders, who's who is us and who is them, um, and the question of time, both the metamorphic aspect of time and also uh, the capricious aspects of of time, and also how things are passed down or not passed down through time. So I was I was hoping we could talk a little bit more about it, about time and the way you describe your childhood as becoming a museum, how an ordinary childhood for you had become fixed and almost fetishized by Western eyes. The image of gray skies, of people waiting in long queues, of the Stasi spying on everything and everyone becoming the only representation of your life and a frozen representation in the past and you even wonder at one point in the book if this sort of static memory is actually used as an instrument of power. And in contrast, when we, when we are with you recollecting your own lived experience in East Germany pre-1989, the past and the present and the future are all present and informing each other. Um, and even the things that aren't that you don't necessarily think were good or ideal are often things that you're still fond of or have nostalgia for. Um, so in your essay at the ends of the earth, where you say there's nothing better for a child than to grow up at the ends of the earth, we are with your grandparents living at the border wall of them. We get recollections of them taking one bath a week, making homemade wine, the jar of leeches on the shelf, not washing one's dishes with running water to conserve resources. But we also see how you are literally living among the past and the future at the same time. You're living among ruins and you're also living among construction sites. And you quote this line from the East German anthem, which seems to capture that resurrected from the ruins faces toward the future turned and I, I guess I wanted to hear more about your writing, perhaps partially against this um, 
way your life has been made into a museum piece to, to re-enter that and as a, um, to combat the way it's become a relic? It's a complicated question, but I, I, I try. Um, the interesting thing is a long time I thought it was like closing a door or like the door being closed by other people. <laughs> and I can only uh, go back to the museum to, to look into my childhood. But in a way, um, we, we shouldn't forget that people having been formed under these very different circumstances are still living on as I, for instance. <laughs> so it's not all about a door being closed. It's also about transformation. And this is the interesting point. I think transformations are the most interesting thing at all because it's, it's like the, 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 the biggest secret that, that lays under our open eyes and still we cannot understand what is happening. Mm. <laughs> so, so if there are ruins from a war, there will be the ruins first, then there will be an empty space and then people build something new. But if you lift through this process as I did in my childhood in the Leipziger Straße, you will see that, that um, or you will get a feeling for the possibility of ruins or of becoming ruins again, and so on and so on. So it's like, it's a movement. And sometimes I think uh, what, what you said about um, that, the, the, like using memory as an instrument, uh, also the impression that the East German past could be put into a museum and taken away from us, the East Germans, former East Germans, uh, could also be used as an instrument and we shouldn't, we shouldn't be content with uh, doing so because um, we all know that uh, on some ethic, they are not only the, the forgotten and um, longer used uh, things, but there are also the ghosts <laughs> and, you know, there are things coming from the ethics down mm -hmm. into the house again. And we are all, um, in a way, we are wondering what they are and we are waiting for them and we are afraid of them. So, so it's a mixture. And uh, many things that I uh, learned from East German thinkers, like the, the first one, I, I have to, I have to uh, say his name again, is Heiner Müller. Uh, the writer Heiner Müller, who was like, for me, the, the the greatest thinker in East Germany, you know, people like these taught us many things that are still of some use. So it's not like ended and can be put away. And 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 perhaps I should, uh, perhaps even I, I like museums very much and I, I'm afraid of museums too. <laughs> Um, I'm sad about things being put into a museum because in the very moment, you know, they are not used in the real life anymore. But still, 
there's something very important preserved in the museum and we shouldn't forget that this what what is preserved has no end it it has a connection to the presence mm. well i wanted to um connect two things that may or may not be connected to for you and i want to see if you feel like they might be because you said this really intriguing thing in your conversation with neil where you said that you were actually unable to write something nonfiction. That even when writing nonfiction, you're writing the invisible, writing that which is not there. Um, but here in this nonfiction book, in not a novel, you have a speech you gave about time for the induction, for your induction into the Berlin Academy of Arts, where you say, We know only one thing that behind everything we can see, hear, and touch, another reality is concealed. A reality we can't see and can't hear and can't touch. A reality made of time. We know, according to scientific findings, that the present belongs to us for precisely three seconds before it plunges down the throat of the past. That means that every three seconds we produce ourselves again as strangers. And I wondered if those two things were connected in your mind, the invisible reality of time and how when you write nonfiction, you are really writing the invisible thing that is not there. And so really you're not writing nonfiction. <laughs> it's, it's all about layers. Meanwhile, I, I have been writing uh, for some years and I could see that uh, mm, sometimes uh, things I thought about 10 years ago and I come back to these uh, thoughts um, get another meaning or more weight. Also the, the thoughts transform or for instance if I do some research and I would read letters of my family for for one book and I would look for something else years later and I can come back to the same letter or to the same recording. Sometimes I record talks or mm -hmm. something like that or I, I, I had my grandmother tell me stories on, on tape. And when I come back to the tapes, I will discover completely other things that were already there on the tape or on the paper but I couldn't see them because my head was was different at this time or my interest was different. So it's like an invisible ink mm. that that becomes visible all of a sudden just because you are seeking for something else. And this is, is a process that, that fascinates me again and again. It's, it's still the same. And um, you see that uh, in the course of your life, you, you will... Um, you know more and more things or more and more different things. You will meet people, you, you read books, you get so many impressions and in every second you become someone new in a way because you understand more or you, you make a connection of two far away things that you haven't seen together before. And it's like, uh, I, I'm also interested in the in the 
how you call it in English, in neurologie, the neurologics, the, the, how do you pronounce it? Oh, uh, neurology? neurology, neurology, yeah. yeah. Neurology, yeah. and um, just recently I, I, uh, I was at a conference about um, how, uh, how our memory uh, is functioning. And there was an interesting, uh, uh, um, what is it, lecture? There was an interesting lecture of a, of a professor, and she she explained that every time we remember something, it is produced anew. So it's like there's a new file produced and put somewhere, also on a new place in our in our head. So the the the, the remembering is an active thing and not just like going back into the museum if you have nothing else to do and then come back to real life no no it's a it's a it's a production what takes place and this interests me a lot and i think this is also something i try with my writing like perhaps i could write again and again the same books you know <laughs> and it would they would be different every time yeah be because i i change i love that um, I wanted to, I want to stay with this notion of time with also the question of writing and time um, for, to, to return to visitation again, which is mainly about a house and its history in the 20th century. You, you nevertheless begin the book 24,000 years in the past. So when someone asked you about this, you said the opening to the book is, is also itself a story of change and disappearing structures, even though those disappearing structures 24,000 years ago aren't human structures. Um, and you also said that one needs a big distance to look at all the stories, and that is a kind of justice to look from so far away. And in Not a Novel in your keynote address called Blind Spot, you say, how far do you have to step back in order to see an entire historical tapestry extending far beyond your own lifetime, how much do you have to know in order to understand what it really is that's flourishing in your own blind spot? I, I thought of both of these when you said earlier that you wanted a distance from yourself or to see yourself from a distance when writing yourself. And I guess I was hoping you could talk about this notion of distance of looking at things from far back rather than from the inside out and then it and its relationship to either or both to justice and to narrative in the visitation uh, my feeling was that there is uh it's a story about about waves so the big waves in the in the history of the earth so like the ice age some thousand years ago and uh, here we are and perhaps one day we will be there no more so it's like a wave of, of coming and going and also in this in the story itself you could see that from chapter to chapter people are um showing up and then they are taken away one or the other way. Um, so 
some readers would ask me if if this wasn't horrible to know that we like to 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 make it my my subject that that people would be taken away but i think it's also a comfort that you know it's also about grow growing it's not only about the the losing things or or uh, disappearing it's also about growing and and starting anew perhaps this is the reason why i i try to to uh, to get this distance myself and to also to put it into my books that um, as in visitation I became just one of the chapters or my story became just one of the chapters so so I'm among others and this was a kind of comfort to me so that I'm not alone with my loss but I, I tried to look at all the different kind of losses and there are stories of much worse losses than my story. So it, uh, it takes, the, takes the weight from your shoulders yeah. to, to look at others. I, I start with the disappearing of the, of the East German uh, situation. Uh, in, the, in the very beginning, we would we would say we can um, know who a Westerner is just from the way how he shuts how he shuts his uh, car door, mm. you know, like the way how he <laughs> shuts his door. Yeah, and and long time I thought about it myself. It was true we could do so we would knew who is from the West, who's from the East. And what is the difference? And the difference, I think, is um, that Westerners are used to behave as customers. Like saying, um, you owe, I, I pay you, and so you owe me to do so. And this gives you a, like, a strength or a power of course, it's a power, the power of buying something. And it um, puts you into the middle. If you have money, yes. <laughs> of course, it puts you into the middle. And you don't need to step back. Because uh, people owe you to work for you when you pay them. And this feeling of being so sure that people owe you something, this made the difference in a way. And, and you could see that. And uh, in, in East Germany, it was more like um, we were not sure that someone owes us something. We couldn't pay for things it, that didn't make sense. Money was not an important thing in the East. Uh, so sometimes we would have to wait much longer than we wanted to wait, you know. <laughs> and. And this gave you the luxury of stepping back. This gave you the luxury of being put out without your own will. You know, you, you couldn't force someone to do so. And, and this is the question of, um, like the, the go and gone, the, the last novel I wrote, it's also about stepping back and having a look at ourselves. What, 
what kind of world is it that we live in and that gives us the feeling that we are worth living in peace and in more or less uh, wealthy uh, uh, yeah how do you call it surroundings yeah <laughs> well I want to I want to ask you about go went gone with regards to distance because I I I find this convincing this idea of um, uh, there being a certain certain ju justice of looking at things from a big distance, but I almost feel like there's something about the way "go went gone" is being received that argues for the opposite around distance and justice. Um, so "go went gone" is, I believe, it's your only novel that portrays the history we are living now. Uh, the crisis of, of refugees from Africa and the Middle East and Europe. And it feels like it's the first novel of yours that's repeatedly called a political novel, even though I think all of your novels are engaged with history and politics. And I wondered if it's called political because of the lack of distance and the ways the lack of distance implicates us in the crisis you're portraying. And what I mean is, that it's more comfortable to read about refugees from a different generation or a different century. So we can read about Jews in the thirties and forties and maybe even imagine ourselves as advocates for them. If we were alive, then risking ourselves on behalf of their lives in direct contradiction to all the ways we're not risking ourselves or advocating for the refugees of today, whether we're talking about Europe or the United States. Um, and it's in this sense, I feel like it almost feels like distance allows us to preserve a falsely moral sense of self, a sense of self that a book like go went gone ruptures because of its lack of distance. There's no way we can, there's no way we can read that book and not confront what we're not doing or what we are doing. <laughs> I, I know what you mean, but I think the, I, I, uh, what I mean is the, the distance to, uh, to step back from your own small world mm. and to, to see more, to have a wide, wider spectrum of, of things that you look at. And uh, I think this is the, the, the point, of course, uh, the main character in the book gets involved and he's no more distant in the end. But still to, to write a book about people that are in a way completely out of focus of like the European and, and like, uh, Northern American world, world's focus. Uh, you 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 need to step back to be able to see yourself in a system of like taking advantage of these people that you don't even look at when you see them at the street, because you don't want to see them and you don't want to connect them to your own life. So you, you need to, to step back and to see, to remember that you are, 
that you yourself are also someone who could lose his home, who could be forced to flee, or perhaps your ancestors had to do so, or lost their homes, and you have to uh, to reach this distance from your daily life, from from the safeness, the security of your of your daily routines and and your. When I started to write the book, I could see that there are not many people able to write a book about it because everyone was so busy uh, with uh, making his living and taking care for his or her children. You know, people are busy nowadays, perhaps more than they were <laughs> in uh, the centuries ago. Um, so people are very busy and you have to uh, jump out of your existence, at least virtually, to look at it from outside. And then you can see that, like, the, the, the good life that we have has to do something with the, um, the, 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 the horrors and, 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 uh, with the desperate people on on the Mediterranean, for instance. Yeah. Well, I definitely want to spend some more time talking about the way you connect our good life with the horrific life of others elsewhere that we're not looking at and our complicity and, and the way that sort of threads through your work. But I, before we do, I, I kind of wanted to step back across the border and into the past of East Germany and and look at something that I wondered if it was connected to this for you. Um, one of the people who I've had on the show who I think of in relationship to you and your work is the writer Dubravka Ugresic, um, whose country, Yugoslavia, disappeared. She doesn't identify as Serbian or Croatian or Bosnian or certainly not as any of those things as, an, as a nation and continues to think of herself as Yugoslavian. And because of her Yugo nostalgia, she has been labeled a traitor and even called a witch, and she uh, lives in exile. Um, obviously, lots of those details are not like you, except for her country no longer existing, but having formed her entirely as a writer. And about nostalgia, she writes, Nostalgia is not subject to control. It is a subversive activity of our brain. Nostalgia works with fragments, sense, touch, sound, melody, color. Its territory is absence. It is the capricious corrective to adaptive memory. But she also says something else that made me think of some of your descriptions of life before the wall fell. She said, when I was quote unquote local, I tried to write globally. Now when I am not there anymore, it appears that my themes are more connected with local and and more specifically, I was thinking about how you describe East Berlin as the end of the world, where even though the border was a matter-of-fact presence at the end of the street, East Berlin might as well have been in some far corner of the ocean rather than, um, rather than in the center of Europe. But there's this way that you describe East Germany as being unusually international and outward-looking, in contrast to all the ways it's very um, insular and, and self-referential, 
there's one way in which it's, I think, much more international and outward looking than America or West Germany was or is. And that was with regards to international solidarity. Um, and you describe like bake sales or recycling drives to raise money, for instance, to free Angela Davis from jail. That's just one example, which to me seems inconceivable in in the United States as a sort of a national project, obviously to free Angela Davis from jail, but to just imagine like connecting across culture and across borders um, in a national narrative of, of connection that isn't national. Uh, and Neil Mukherjee calls you the greatest or the great novelist of borders, but I might say that you're the great novelist of border crossing or crossing borders or crossing boundaries. And I guess I was wanting to hear a little bit more about solidarity and thinking collectively and maybe how that might connect to some of what you're describing about stepping back and out of our bubble to be able to see things that are out of focus. And, I th and maybe even the project of a nation itself, by definition, is keeping things beyond its borders, out of focus. Um, and that's something that your work seems to be working actively against. My father always uses to say the, the, um, the word nation or the idea of a nation was born during the French Revolution when they wanted to form an army without paying the people. Oh, wow. <laughs> you know? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> to to, to, to uh, set people in motion, it needs an idea. And in this moment, the idea was the nation. Um, so the nation is a relatively new um, idea. When we, when we look at the... Um, Austrian uh, uh, kingdom, the Kaiserreich. Uh, you could see they would. There's also there's also a saying of uh, in, in in Latin. So other other people um, will have a war to to get bigger, also to to make their uh, territory bigger, and and the, the um, lucky Austria they just marry. So to make the territory bigger. And so uh, we could see that there were many, many different uh, people uh, put together in this in this huge uh, um, empire without any question of like teaching in one language or forcing them to feel the same feelings, you know, or to, you know, it was like everybody could be however and <laughs> and and would be just taken into the territory it was a question of territory not not of nation and now all of a sudden we have this idea of a nation uh, also germany has a long long history of being split into many many small tiny kingdoms it was full of borders until the 19th century so so it was um and even now, it's uh, uh, it's uh, perhaps similar to the United States. It had has different states and different laws in the states still. Mm. Um, but the idea to, which uh, should keep it together is the idea to be German, 
and I, I really uh, I, I like the German language. I like to I, I love to to read German books, but I also love to read other books. And for me, the idea of a nation um, uh, doesn't rise a feeling. So it's not connected to me emotionally. And in a way, I think this is also the result of an East German um, being brought up in, in East Germany. Because uh, we were kind of forbidden to say we are Germans. The word, the word German was cut out and mm. put in the dark corner, into the dark corner after the um, fascist time. And, you know, there was not, it was like, you were, it was like nobody would dare to be proud of being German <clears throat> after all we had done before. So um, I didn't learn this feeling. And um, uh, the beginning of the question was the nation and the inside and outside and the crossing borders. Wait, wait, wait. <laughs> <laughs> uh, the beginning of the question was somewhere else. Um, I was just thinking about how you were talking about in, when we were talking before about stepping outside of our own bubbles. And I guess I wondered mm. if that was connected to the way East Germany was, so, was so connecting I, I to solidarity, I, international yeah. solidarity, which is not about nation in the same way. Now, yeah. The, so, so uh, one of the good things I, I, I was taught in East Germany was this international solidarity. And there, there are some ideas like these, um, that are still uh, worth uh, thinking about now because uh, solidarity is missing. That's very clear. The idea of solidarity of um, provide people uh, with uh, things that they are lacking like education or equipment or whatever without taking advantage this is missing yeah. in the world we are living in. So, so um, perhaps you know the, uh, the, the, the famous Marxist quote, uh, proletarians of all countries unite. And this was the idea of uh, borders that are no more needed because the people would unite and uh, also the beginning of the Russian Revolution was finishing the war and saying, you know, people of one country shouldn't kill people of other countries just because someone who's in the government wants to uh, take advantage of the resources of this other country. So we shouldn't fight each other. The, 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 the starting point was to make peace with others and to to get a feeling for being on the same side. Uh, the problem is that later on, many of these ideas were forgotten or put aside for a later moment. <laughs> and so it didn't stay. 
in this pure uh, idealistic uh, state. Yeah. Well, since we're talking about Marx, I, I wanted to ask you about more about objects and ownership of objects and property and props in your work. For instance, the book by Goethe that the Jewish family flees with and which features in pivotal moments in the plot of the end of days. And not only the house in visitation and the questions of ownership of the house, but also all the items that each owner buries or hides before fleeing. And then many of the essays in Not a Novel, they also focus on objects and their legacy. But before we talk about objects and property in relationship to the collective and solidarity, I was hoping maybe you could talk about objects in relationship to storytelling and story. Uh, because I imagine, maybe this is just me imagining since I ha don't have any familiarity with this, but I imagine having been a props manager for theater, that how an object moves during the course of a play might have its own story. And, and if that's true, I guess I was interested to hear more about the ways you so often tell stories through the stories of objects. In a way, it has to do with uh, the the um, focus being put away from the human being, but on other things, just experimentally. Mm -hmm. <laughs> so um, my feeling was that, uh, of course, things they are passive. They cannot move themselves. They they are uh, dependent from people that put them here or there. But still, they have their own stories. They have their own ways. They, in a way, I, I believe in uh, things preserving time or being connected to things that happened in their presence in former times. So they keep a secret, they, they keep something, they store time. Yeah. And uh, I like this very much about things. And uh, when I look at, at things in my, in my texts and in, in, in my books, it allows me to, to step away from myself and to follow a completely different kind of being. Uh, perhaps it's the same as if you sit on a on a table in in summertime, and there would um, uh, like uh, a butterfly or a bird or or some bug or whatever kind of animal land on the table and move, and you look at it and you forget about yourself, mm. and you know, aha, where did he came from, and where does he does he go to, you know, what what is his like. Uh, professional what is he busy with or she <laughs> or it so so uh, I really like these moments when you realize that you are not the most important thing in the world and not everything is is depending from you there are things that have other ideas or other ways to go and uh, I'm I'm always relieved to see that because it means also that that um, when I wasn't be there, wouldn't be there anymore, life would go on. Yeah. 
this is also nice to know. I think this would be a good time to hear the pressure cooker. I, I, okay. <laughs> I try my best. The pressure cooker. When I'm abroad, where I travel with just one suitcase, a change of shoes, and two or three books, it nearly feels like I'm not missing anything. From that nearly empty distance, it's nearly possible for me to forget about my overfilled apartment in Berlin. My apartment was never exactly empty, but now, since my mother's death, it contains two of everything. There are two packages of laundry detergent, four pairs of boots instead of two. There are two winter coats, 40 travel guides instead of 20, two sewing boxes, two wash basins, two trunks, two desks, and so on. My job is to take these two lives that have suddenly been crammed together in my apartment and make them one. But it's not an easy job. My job is to distinguish between those things that reminded my mother of something and those things that remind me of something. To use the things that I can use and give away the rest or sell them at the flea market. But since it simply isn't possible to take every single thing that once belonged to one life and attach it to another, whether by putting it to use, giving it away, or selling it at the flea market, it stands to reason that I will also have to throw some things away. In the basement, I found the pressure cooker that my mother used throughout my childhood to cook green cabbage stew. Its lid doesn't close anymore, and even if it did, I'd be afraid that the pot would explode, since I don't know much about pressure cookers. So I put it in the box of things to throw away. The box of things to throw away sits in the trunk of my car for several days until I have time to throw the things away. The only thing that stays in the box is the pressure cooker. I want to think about taking it to the recycling center since it's a large pot and there's a lot of metal in it. Again and again, when I open the trunk, I see the silver pot with a red enamel lid sitting there in the dark. I see the whistle on the lid that always whistled when the green cabbage stew was finished or when the pressure was too high. I take off the red lid and look into the pot of my childhood. The bottom of the pot is stained a light brown. My mother always washed it by hand. At some point, after I've been driving around Berlin with a pressure cooker in my trunk for several weeks, I get the idea that I should bury the pot, a quiet burial on our land outside the city, where my son has already buried moles and mice. A very quiet burial, since I don't want anyone to know that I'm the kind of person who holds a funeral for a pressure cooker. How easily the box of things to throw away has transformed itself in the trunk of my car into a box of things to take to the country. As I drive out to the country, I tell myself that the pot will always be there under the ground, my silent partner. 
I consider whether I should fill it with dirt for all eternity and how deep the grave should be. Does aluminum decay? When I arrive in the country, the first snow is on the ground and the soil is hard. The burial will have to wait till spring. The water pipe for the garden is frozen, so my mother's pressure cooker comes in handy. I fill it to the brim with snow and put it on the stove so that I can use the warm water to thaw out the frozen pipe. The snow melts, revealing a few brown autumn leaves that were lying in the grass when the snow began to fall. The hotter the snow broth becomes, the more quickly the leaves swirl around in the pot, the stronger the smell of decay. In a cold, winterized kitchen with no running water, in a small house that can only be inhabited in the summer, my mother's pressure cooker has become a pot once again. I'm cooking a soup of black leaves. We've been listening to Jenny Erpenbeck read The Pressure Cooker from her latest book, Not a Novel, translated into English by Kurt Beals. So there, there are several essays in Not a Novel that engage with your mother's death through the process of sorting out the objects she owned, counting them, listing them, accounting for them, deciding their destinies. And it, it made me think of something you said in, in a conversation about visitation. You said, the language of law and legal bureaucracy is interesting because it contains emotions that have been deformed, emotions that aren't alive anymore, that are mummies of words. For instance, the legal language of the word claim comes from the word for mourning, but it is almost lost. And then in that, in that conversation, you go on to talk about how you're interested when very far away language gets power over real life, how ink on paper can change people's lives, often in a bad way. And when you talked with Neil about the essay in not a novel called Open Bookkeeping, which is where you sort out what to do with the belongings you've inherited, you say that in part this piece is a way to fight against an economic or bureaucratic way of thinking. And I was hoping you could talk more about that, about bureaucratic and economic thinking and the way that is maybe you suggesting that maybe that's deforming, deforming emotions, but maybe it's also deforming language. Um, Can you talk to us about the ways in which your accounting of your mother's property and objects is pushing back against a certain way to view things economically and bureaucratically? When I started to write the text, it was for a project um, of someone who wanted me to write a text about uh, the difference of me as an um, like economic entity, <laughs> you know, like a subject to uh, uh, yeah in the in the system of of money and me as a writer and human being. And I thought in this situation when my mom uh, passed away, uh, there was nothing else I could write about uh, in this very moment. And 
and I was so under shock um, because I'm I'm her only daughter, so the, the whole responsibility was on me and I had to take care for her things and and for the for the household and I was I was kept so busy by the formal letters I got every day asking me for this and that uh, like filling out this and that form or answering this and that uh, question and sending uh, like the, the accounts of this and that and I thought it in a way it's perhaps it's good that it keeps you busy at this time so because you are too sad anyway and um, on the other hand it, it has nothing to do with uh, what death is about it, it was like completely beyond the reality of experiencing death or losing someone uh, who is close. In a way, I think from the moment on the paper gets in between you and someone you love. The paper which is coming from the outside world, so to say. Um, it. Uh, for me, it was like trying to to take me away from my mom, or like to 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 turning her into something like that has no uh, no soul and no personal life. It was like she she became a number in a way uh, in 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 the system, and of course we all are in a way numbers in the system. Uh, but this is not the reality. And the interesting thing is that. Uh, the reality of being a human being uh, has nothing to do with this world of uh, counting and uh, filling out forms. And uh, of course, uh, a state has to organize its members. And perhaps it also has to keep the members busy <laughs> so that they cannot have other ideas <laughs> than to fill out the form. I don't know. Um, but uh, I, I really, um, I have, I have a big distrust uh, to the truth of papers. Mm. And as we can see, and uh, like especially in Germany, uh, in the Nazi time, they they would also have lists for all the people that they sent into the gas chambers. And, and, and the reality of it is that the loss stays with us until now. There are people still missing on the streets that are no more alive or never uh, came to, to life because their grandparents had been sent into the gas chambers and we would, we would see the lists and everything is counted. But the reality is somewhere else, the, the, the emotional reality, the, the human uh, feeling for this kind of uh, experience or loss is um, is different, and and uh, perhaps this is the one of the things that a writer could do to um, to keep the real memory alive or to to preserve the things that are um, killed. Mm. 
by being put into a list. Yeah. Well, when you, when you were talking earlier about how people in East Germany and, and including your family didn't anticipate that the country would just disappear, that perhaps there would be a, a third way uh, when the two Germanys reunited, not the, the winning of one and the erasure of another. And you've also talked about how that's reflected in, in property law, um, that all ownership claims established since the beginning of East Germany reverted back to owners who had the land pre-East Germany. But you've, you've asked why, uh, why that as a border uh, around the law? Why, is, why does the law start and end there? And also you asked why the beginning of valid ownership claims begins at the end of Nazi times rather than at the beginning of Nazi times. In other words, why those dispossessed by the Nazis don't have the right to return to their property. But West Germans had the right to, quote-unquote, take back the properties from East Germans. And I, I recently had the comics journalist Joe Sacco on the show. He has a new book called Pain, Pain the Land that's about the indigenous people of the Northwest Territories of Canada and resource extraction. And in, in his encounters with them, one of the things he was most impressed by was a sort of a radically different relationship to land altogether. And he read a quote uh, by Jean-Jacques Rousseau, actually, that went, the first person who, having enclosed the plot of land, took it into his head to say, this is mine and found people simple enough to believe him, was the true founder of civil society. What crimes, wars, murders, what miseries and horrors would the human race have been spared had someone pulled up the stakes or filled in the ditch and cried out to his fellow men, do not listen to this imposter. You are lost if you forget that the fruits of the earth belong to all and the earth to no one. And this made me think of the character, the gardener in Visitation, a character who transcends ownership. And I also think he sort of transcends borders and boundaries. He's the gardener of the house, regardless of who owns it. He's almost quasi-mythical, but he continues to take care of both the house and the land and seems to also be a bridge between nature and culture and you've, you've called him the real owner before, or if not the owner, the person with the most authentic connection to the place and to the house, and that it is relationship and the work you do, the actions you take to establish relationship, not paperwork or money or laws that matter. So in, in a way, I kind of imagine you as the gardener, that each of your different books is the temporary occupant of a house that you are tending. But I'm curious if you see the gardener or the notion of the gardener as sort of an alternate path um, to much of what you portray in your books. Like a, um, much of what you portray is the opposite, but the gardener feels like um, a countercurrent to... Uh, the histories we we read when we read you. I really think he he is the true owner because of his work and because of his uh, real co 
connection to the place so which is which is uh, uh, founded again and again day by day by by uh, physical doing uh, physical work and um, when uh, now it's 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 a long time uh, a long time has been um, passed since the the wall fell and now we can see that in all so-called good districts in Berlin or also outside of Berlin, the rich people would buy places or build houses. So it's like a dictatorship of the wealthy mm. and they would, they would um, set food <laughs> on the place and stay there forever as it seems if the system stays the same. And uh, in East German times, it was, uh, it was much more, much, much less organized, neither by money, because money didn't play a big, big part, uh, nor by, nor by, like, power, you would find in the in the good places around lakes, for instance, outside of Berlin, as the place I wrote about, you would find um, like a nurse, a mechanic, peasants, uh, the the um, one um, director of one of the biggest companies for a technical company in in, in East Germany, uh, a doctor, a writer, whatever. It was a mixture, and it was not about money. It was a bit about privilege, but not only. Some privileged people got good places, okay, but in the in between, there were like completely normal people still living there, and and they did all they didn't have to pay much for their places, and and you know it was like the the money was taken, uh, like not out of the system, but the money didn't play a big big role or big part. And this changed a lot, and um, and I think the the idea of uh, privare, you know, privare is in Latin is to take something from someone. So it's like stealing. Privare is, is stealing in, in translation. So if you if you start to to fix the to to fix the law in a way that gives the right only to the wealthy people, it will cause problems on long term. Mm. As we see it now in our cities, no no normal person can pay for a two-room apartment in New York or even in Berlin, it's, it's hard. You would pay like 400 uh, euro for one room in, in, a, in a community of people. Mm-hmm. So this is completely mad. And it means uh, it destroys the social structure of living together. It destroys the um, taking part in, in cultural events and like having short ways to interesting places and so on. It destroys a lot. And if you ask for the reason, it is because uh, private owning is supported and alternatives are not supported. 
in in Berlin we have the the very rare situation of empty houses in the middle of the city. And and one in one of the houses, a friend of mine uh, has opened a cinema just recently. In a almost ruin, East German ruin, in the very center of Berlin, which is nice. And there is a group of 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 people that want to. Um, invent a new a kind of, of living together of old and young people and having things like cinema, theater and whatever in the same house. Wonderful idea. And, and one would think, okay, this is like utopia coming true uh, to invent living together again and new. And, and uh, this is, uh, they, they, um, they were accepted for one year so like trying or like having a, a test, but after one year offices will move in and the center at Alexanderplatz will be dead, you know, like or will become dead again. Right. So so it's interesting why um, uh, offices are supported or there are so many um, uh, ugly houses built just um, to make the uh, as much money from them as possible. So like in terms of uh, uh, square meters. So it's not a question if they look nice or if they uh, have spaces for, for uh, the community. It's just a building for private ownership and to make as much money as someone can make yeah. out of one square meter. So these are problems that we are all facing. And we we are the ones who are um, like the ones who have to leave the centers when we are not having enough money. And and also like the poor people, the, the, the beggars are forbidden to, to be seen in the centers of our city. So everyone who comes to Berlin thinks, okay, here are no beggars anymore, but this is not true. They are sent away. They are forbidden to, to, uh, to be in the center, to be seen in the center. So um, this has also a lot to do uh, with the, uh, that we should, should keep our eyes also on, on the, on the dark corners, which, which are, taken away from us. The unfocused parts. Yeah. Well, I want to take a short detour into language and style and syntax, because if we think of the gardener as someone beyond nation and beyond borders, and also in a sense beyond time, since he endures and doesn't seem to die, I, I guess I wanted to ask you about your thoughts about how language can capture something beyond language, how language can capture something that transcends language and, and mention two things that you say in not a novel. So here's one of them. If the language that you can speak isn't enough, that's a very good reason to start writing as paradoxical as it may be. The impossibility of expressing what happens to us in words is what pushes us toward writing. Whenever I have not been able to understand something have not been able to capture it in words. That's when I, I've started writing. And that's how it was with my first book too. 
And then also you've, you've talked about how opera directing is a good starting point for writing novels because music and literature are both connected to silence. And you even talk about the silence beneath the very loquacious books of Thomas Bernhard, um, books that most people wouldn't, wouldn't immediately think of as having a silence in them. So I was hoping maybe you could talk more about why the failure of language is a great starting place for a writer and how music and writing are connected to silence. So connected to the absence of sound and the absence of words. Naya, what I um, always try is to, I would say to, to create a surface with, uh, which has gaps to the dark underneath mm. so that you that you would you would you would step on the surface of words and then all of a sudden you would you would reach such such a gap and look into the dark underneath and understand that the the essential thing is taking place in the in the in the in the darkness so so what i always try is to to write a passage or a chapter and then start writing the next passage or next chapter and in between there in the best uh, I if, if, if I succeed to do so I, I would like to to have uh, to create a space of uh, the unsaid or the uh, space for all the things that you cannot write about. Yeah, you can come close with words, and then you reach the point where the reader, uh, the reader, should should use his own um, uh, feelings to to step in for the things that one cannot put into words. In many books that are read nowadays or perhaps also in other times it's only about contents it's like what what happens and i think this is not enough for for literature it's it's not all about content uh it's not all about plot the the things that that really need some um The things that that really interest me are behind the content. Like if someone is doing this or that, I would I would ask myself, why is she or he doing so? What uh, uh, you know when he's uh, saying a sentence, I would ask what is behind the sentence. What is the sentence used be for for for. Uh, what is the sentence used for? It's not all, all not all on the surface, which could be easily understood. Yeah, in music, it's the it's uh, the same. The my favorite passages are the passages when the when the music continues the sentence when when like ah um, uh, yeah, you know. <laughs> I cannot sing now, <laughs> but 
there are some passages in, in Wagner operas, for instance, someone is singing and then all of a sudden he has to stop or he doesn't know how to continue and then the music will step in mm. and open up. And then you can see that this is the thing which is uh, the reason for writing an opera and the reason for seeking expression. When you mention about Thomas Bernhardt that the silence is in in his work or underneath his work is related to the repetition in his work on the sentence level, is that related to what you're describing with the opera in some way, that it's something about the music of the sentences rather than the content of the sentences? The overabundant content and underneath it is this music that is the silence? Naya, in, in Thomas Bernhardt, we often have these repetitions and it's like someone being forced to, to speak or to think in order to avoid which is the real, uh, the real force on work. Yeah. <laughs> you know, it's, in, in Bernhardt, I've, I've got the feeling the more uh, a character is speaking, uh the less you see uh, you um, how to express this uh, you you see i'm not a speaker i'm a writer and 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 the problem is <laughs> if i have to express myself speaking <laughs> i'm completely stupid no you're I a great speaker i try uh speak a lot is also a way to avoid to really speak i also told neil i before I studied opera directing, I, I studied two years uh, like uh, the theory of drama and, and, and like being a dramaturg, which is a profession that doesn't exist in America. And, uh, you know, the, the, the one who's uh, reading a lot of books and supporting the director. And, um, and we always, we would always ask, why is someone speaking? And only in very few passages you can see that someone is speaking because he wants to tell someone a certain content. In most of the cases, a character in a play is speaking because uh, he wants to manipulate someone, he wants to uh, avoid speaking of other things. So he's like misleading his partners on stage, mm -hmm. uh, or he is hiding his inner soul by speaking out loudly. You know, there are many, many reasons for speaking out that have nothing to do with the contents of what is spoken. Mm. And this is interesting. Well, it, I, I want to finish our conversation uh, with a discussion of the final section of Not a Novel. The first section being life, the second section, literature and music, and the third, society. And society is the shortest of the three, but I also felt like it was the most powerful. And I think it is the most powerful because, as we mentioned earlier, with regards to your last novel, Go and Gone, the, these pieces implicate us in ongoing living history in ways that are uncomfortable. In earlier pieces, you explore the writings and the lives of writers who many people might not have known were refugees. Thomas Mann 
was a refugee. Ovid was a refugee. But here in this section society, we open with an obituary for an African refugee who you knew and who was also a character in Go Went Gone. And I was hoping you could tell us about the real in the world work you did with refugees in relationship to writing the novel and more specifically about the life that you are describing, naming and honoring in, in this second to last piece in the book. When I first met uh, the, the group of re- refugees, I, um, I later wrote about uh, one of the, first uh, persons I met was Bashir and and he was uh, he was a Nigerian and he he had uh, he had lost his two children on crossing uh, while while crossing the Mediterranean Sea and uh, he had to leave behind his uh, the company and uh, and uh, either his own company, his own family, the children were were lost, um, and so so he he reached Europe, and he he uh, he was so impressive to all of us because he he never gave up, he was always uh, fighting for a change of politics. Uh, he never um, thought of his own advantage. His interest was not uh, his own destiny, like being safe himself, but what he fought for was uh, a change of thinking of the European uh, politicians. And what was so special about him was that, that he formed a group of all these people that were uh, coming from different African countries, and normally they they wouldn't know each other, and sometimes they they didn't even share the language. Uh, many of them spoke spoke English, but but uh, normally they would never have been a group. And he made a group out of them, and he really organ- he organized demonstrations and um, things that uh, uh, he he tried to to get attention for the general, general problem, not just for, for his own. Um, and he, he, he was, he had a big heart. He was very, he was a very special person. Um, um, when he, I, uh, after many, many, many bad places, I helped him to find, uh, a, an apartment, um, a small one and a half room apartment. And in the end, when he had died, we would find out that there were like, I don't know, I think eight people in the apartment, living in the apartment, in the one and a half room apartment, because he couldn't say no to his to his uh, friends and to the people that were uh, looking for a place to, to sleep. Uh, so so he was he was fantastic. Mm. <laughs> uh, yeah, it was a great loss to 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 when he, when he died, and uh, it was also uh, the movement as movement ended in this moment when he died. It was like the people were spread all over the city, and some were accepted later, and 
the most of them were not accepted and sent back to Italy, and so they they were lost, and the group didn't exist anymore. And I think it's it's important to um, to be aware of a situation that also destroys uh, movements. It's interesting that also the Occupy uh, movement was was uh, was attacked. And and uh, it's a, if you if you want to change things in general, you you need to be organized. Otherwise, you will be spread all over the world and and not reach any anything. What's one of the things that I think is really important about Go Went Gone and and the work you did in 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 the world at large around refugees is pointing out that arriving in Europe is not surviving and you we really learn about the way um paperwork can be uh an obstacle and status can be an obstacle even once you're here because you know bashir his father was burned to death in nigeria he ends up in libya where black africans are hunted openly on the street his his children die when the boat capsizes but when he arrives in Europe, you would think that would be the end of a narrative arc. Like, okay, now he's he has asylum, and asylum is um, going to rescue him. But he's a skilled person. And when we think back to the gardener and you saying the most authentic connection to the land is, is work, he isn't allowed to work. And you have these lines in the obituary that you wrote. If you aren't allowed to work, you can never really arrive. And if and um, if you aren't allowed to work, you remain trapped in your own memories. And it also made me think of uh, a recent talk I was uh, an, in the audience of of a Native American poet, Natalie Diaz, and she was talking about questions of belonging and citizenship and how in the U.S. asylum paperwork has always been available in Arabic, but census paperwork so the the census which counts who is an inhabitant of the country is only now being discussed to be allowed to be in arabic so in a way the paperwork isn't a sign of a change in status but a way to sort of reinscribe or enforce the status that already exists that the person would only be seen as an asylum seeker but never as a inhabitant and and someone who belongs. Um, but I guess, I guess where I'm going with this is, is part of what you're doing is, is answering a question, an unasked and asked question of people who say, well, we're not guilty for the problems Africans have now, or in America, we're not guilty for the problems someone from Honduras has now. And I guess maybe before we end, I was hoping maybe you could speak to that, to the collectivity around finding and reaching for solidarity across these agendas, which seem to be reinscribing the the dynamic rather than changing it. My impression is that the the main mistake is in thinking of they and we, the thought of border. And the thought of border in both uh, senses uh, to keep someone out, 
and to be safe ourselves. I think this is the the uh, the main mistake. Um, once you have uh, started to work or to support uh, refugees, you will see uh, after a few days only, or perhaps after some hours already, uh, that of course each of them is an individual with his or her own uh, story. That of course. Uh, is a story that we can understand as human beings. It is, it, it, uh, there's no refugee which is not a human being that, that we could connect to by our own emotions if we want to do so. Because they, they have families, they want to save their lives, they want to found an existence and so, and so on. Things that we all can understand. And I think the mistake is to make a distinction uh, as if some people um, are worth living in peace and in, in a good life and others are outside and we have to keep them outside. This is the mistake. We are all human beings and there is no outside. The outside of us is the universe. Yeah. There is no other outside. If we could understand this very simple thought, we would understand all of a sudden that there is not one single person that we could just let die in the Mediterranean or somewhere else or keep in a limbo forever like the poor children and families in Moria that they, they burned the refugee camp in order to, to get attention that they are still there. Mm. Um, they are all just human beings as I am or as you are or as our families are, and they should be given the right to take care for themselves. And and uh, another mistake is also to think that they just want to uh, to take advantage of the European or the American system, but there are not so many advantages. Even if you are living here, you have to struggle to found your existence. It is not easy, even if you are accepted, even if you speak the language and have studied and whatever. It isn't simply simple to to make a living here. So they would have to try hard anyway, <laughs> but they should, given the chance, to to uh, find their ways, and you know the the freedom is not reached as long as it is a freedom within borders, yeah. like having the right passport or not having the right passport. This is not freedom. Well, I, I want to end on an impossible, uh, perhaps impossible question. In this final essay, Blind Spots, you say that we fear that we fear what we can't solve, that true listening is not only a skill, but a risk because it can reveal our own impotence. And thus we fear the gap between sentences and we fear listening itself. And you've said elsewhere that one of the main problems with East Germany was that language became devastated by fear that it wasn't theirs anymore because one wrong word could lead to your death. 
I can't speak to Germany today, but in America today, on the verge of an election that might or might not be legitimate or respected if it is legitimate, that language has been devastated not by fear, but by being removed from any sense of truth or responsibility to a shared reality. And a, a recent guest of mine was Lance Olson, who has lived in Berlin, and his last novel, My Red Heaven, takes place during the early years of Hitler's rise in Berlin, but feels like it's making commentary on America today at the same time. And we were talking about how well Germany has grappled with the actions of its past compared to America. There are no statues to Nazis like we have statues to Confederate soldiers that fought to defend slavery, for instance. And there are stumbling stones or tripping stones in Berlin, places that commemorate where, for instance, a Jewish family was taken from their home to an extermination camp as you walk around the city. But what's frightening to me is that perhaps Germany can, can be held up as an example of a country that did a particularly good job of historical reckoning and spiritual inventory around its history. And yet, even with that, there's been a resurgence of far-right and fascist sentiment in Germany. That reckoning hasn't been a vaccine against that. It, so it's, it's easier for me to understand why America, in its willful ignorance of its own past, has gone toward Trump. And I guess in light of that, I wanted to hear thoughts you have about whether the power of listening or the limitations of listening or the power or limitations of national reckoning and writing in the face of this. And then, and then if you're willing to share what you're working on now, what we would expect from you next, like what you're doing after having written about the European refugee crisis and now having collected 20 years of your writings of nonfiction, what, what, we could expect to see next from Jenny Erpenbeck. Yeah, honestly said, I, I doubt that um, that either remembering things that happened only, let's say, two generations ago uh, can uh, can help to to avoid making the same mistakes again. I think the remembering uh, is, is a good thing. As long as there is a, uh, let's say, generational or like familiar connection to the past, so that there is at least a bit of, of your own in the history. But after, after two generations, uh, the experiences have to be made again, I think. So, and and the chance is to enable people to make experiences themselves. For instance, giving uh, kids in school the chance to meet a refugee, to listen him or herself to someone who, who has gone through all these hardships. 
all the stories and all the the things that good people try to you know to give to the next to pass to the next generation are are good but not enough. I think the the their own experiences cannot be replaced by remembering, and making mistakes uh, cannot be replaced by telling how they should do. It's it's uh, it's a problem, and and uh, perhaps art is a way to to like transport emotions, but. I doubt that someone is uh, reading a book and becoming a new person. <laughs> and I could only see, also see with my book, uh, no right-wing people would read my book. Mm. This is the problem. No people who is not already interested would read my book. Many nice and wonderful and good people read my book and liked it and 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 wrote me letters, I want to do the same, you know, things like that, like Richard, the main character, uh, which is nice. But they already were interested. All these were people that, that already have uh, a feeling for how how hard it is for a refugee to, to arrive in Europe or America or somewhere. So, so remembering has also... Um, I could say in German. Real, real experience is uh, is the only thing that that can help, and and we should we should take care that that the opportunities of uh, of meeting or making people meet each other that these opportunities are not cut or you know always also a question of money that these places where you could find people of uh, coming from somewhere or having other facing other hardships than the new are facing uh, that these places should be uh, still financed or given some support from from the communities I think this is the only way to 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 uh, keep um, to keep this kind of of rather left-wing thinking alive and yeah. and the connection and the solidarity alive um yeah and my new book <laughs> my new book also i i have been writing now since one and a half or even perhaps two years one and a half i've been writing a new book a novel a novel not not a novel <laughs> but a novel not not a novel uh, not not in all. Um, it's my first love story, and it's connected to to the end of of the GDR of East Germany. It's uh, a love story in the foreground and and a story of decay in the background, and both mixed together, so to say. Well, I I can't wait to read it, and I'm. So glad you were on the show today, Jenny. You look like Karl Marx. <laughs> <laughs> you mean with my uh, pandemic beard? <laughs> yeah, a bit. I, I got the feeling I'm talking to, to Karl Marx. <laughs> <laughs> 
Um, but but thank you for for um, giving me the opportunity to talk so thoroughly. Mm. It's 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 rare. Mm. Okay, so thank you so much. Thank you. It was a it was real a pleasure. pleasure. Yeah. I, Mark. <laughs> okay. <laughs> Bye. <laughs> Bye. 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 <laughs> Today's program was not recorded at the studios of KBOO, but at the volunteer-powered, non-commercial, listener-sponsored, full-strength, makeshift home office of me, David Naiman. Today's addition to the bonus audio archive is a conversation with Jenny Erpenbeck's translator, Kurt Beals, about the translation of Not a Novel, a Memoir in Pieces. This joins bonus audio from other translators, from Sophie Hughes, to Suzanne Jo Levine, as well as many editions from the authors themselves, from Craft Talks by Marlon James and Jeannie Venasco, to readings from Vicky Now, Brendan Shimoda, Garth Greenwell, Forrest Gander, Jen Bourbon, Nikki Finney, N.K. Jemison, and many others. To find out more about the Bonus Audio Archive and the other potential benefits and rewards from becoming a listener supporter, head over to patreon.com slash between the covers. Or if you'd like to make a one-time donation, you can do so via PayPal at tinhouse.com slash support. I'd like to thank the Tin House team who keep this ship afloat. Elizabeth DeMeo and Elisa Ogie in the book division, Jacob Valla in the art department, Shwena Cantor in publicity, and Lance Cleland, the director of the Summer and Winter Tin House Writers Workshops. Finally, I'd like to thank Imre Lodbrog and Barbara Browning for creating this outro. Their album, Imre Lodbrog, A Sapatita Me, can be found on iTunes, and Barbara Browning's trove of ukulele covers can be found at soundcloud.com slash Barbara Browning. 